Own Your Truth with life strategist Laura T. Real advice for regular people. Now, here's Laura. Hello and welcome to Own Your Truth, where we're talking real advice for regular people. I'm Laura T. Thank you so much for listening. I know there are lots of ways you can spend your time, and I'm grateful you're going to spend the next hour with me. So grab a pen and paper tonight because we're going to talk about a really interesting subject, the retail debacle. I'm sure sure you've heard about it. You know, malls are failing, retail stores are closing. So what does that have to do with regular people like you and me? Well, there are lessons to be learned on every side of the subject. Tonight, I'm going to focus on the information we're fed as consumers. Is it really true what we're hearing about the retail industry? And then we're going to talk about how the industry story is actually creating its own reality. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more later in the show. And then I'm going to offer some lessons learned um, from the retail debacle and specifically focused on a concept I use often here. You know, how can we change our perception? How can we change our procedure? So let's see how we can apply this concept to our own work, business, and lives. All right. I'm so excited about this topic. You know, when I originally thought about this topic, I was, I was really ready to rant uh, about my horrible retail experiences during the holidays. It's just, it's become so frustrating to me to go into messy stores, to be ignored by salespeople who are either on their phones or chit-chatting with other salespeople, to buy brand name products now made of cheap materials, and then listen to the executives in the retail industry complain that Amazon is killing their business. So... While creating the content for this episode, I thought, well, you know, it's not really like me just to rant, right? So nothing drives me more crazy than someone who complains and doesn't offer potential solutions. So with that in mind, I decided it was more important to see what lessons could be learned from the retail debacle and how we can use those lessons in our business and our life. Obviously, I'm not approaching this subject as an expert on retail as an industry, But simply stepping back and thinking as a consumer, and obviously in my role as an executive coach, and observing from the outside, hearing some of the conversations through industry periodicals, etc., and hearing what's going on on the inside, and then the key is getting insanely curious about what I'm hearing. That's to take away some of that frustration. So... The first challenge is, um, actually, the first question I have is, what is the current state of retail? Well, in order to understand the debacle, it's important to look at retail statistics and get to the heart of the numbers, right? That makes logical sense. Well, so actually, here's where the first challenge comes into play. Depending on where you look and what you read, the message is inconsistent. When people say all you have to do is look at the numbers, I'm the first one to push back and go, oh, let's ask some questions and go deeper. I, let's think about numbers like a photograph. They capture a moment in time. They're limited by what can be seen in the lens. That automatically means information is being left out. And the result is always the perspective of the person taking the picture. Right, So let's apply that same concept to numbers. They can be manipulated to tell a story. 
and the story can be suited to fit the needs of shareholders. It could be more suited to sit association members, or the story could be used to fit or sell newspapers. So let's look at some of the numbers I found, and keep in mind this too is only part of a total picture. What I want to do is give you enough information to make you curious about what you hear and about what you read. Information that inspires you to go deeper into your own numbers, to look at your own story, and think about what may be missing. This gets to the heart of the information we're fed as customers. We take all of the information we get in as if it's fact, instead of using it as a place to get curious. So let's get curious now. The first place I found was um, a report released by CB Insights. They put out a list of 81 retailers that have declared bankruptcy since 2015 and included reasons for the bankruptcy. Some of the larger companies I'm going to sort of name to give you a concept of what we're looking at in terms of retail failure. 2017, the companies included The Limited, Wet Seal, Eastern Outfitters, Radio Shack, Payless Shoe Stores, Gymboree, Vitamin World, Aerosol Shoes, and Toys R Us, to name just a few. In 2018, The Walking Company, Claire's, Nine West, Rockport, Brookstone, Sears, and David's Bridal. Again, this is just a small portion of the bigger lists. In 2019, the retailers declaring bankruptcy included Things Remembered, Diesel, FTD Floris, Barney's, Forever 21, Payless for a second time, and Gymboree for a second time. So although there were multiple reasons for each company's failure, the two most common, as I searched through the list, appeared to be over-leverage and lack of adaptability. As you read the report, adaptability is described as a wide range of market misses, right, that include a lot of e-commerce. But the excuse you hear most often from people in retail is, Amazon is killing us and no one shops in stores anymore. We're going to talk more about those two topics um, when we look at how a story can quickly become an identity. We'll do that in a little bit. Meanwhile, so, so you've got this one piece of information that shows here's the downfall of retail. Meanwhile, a very different story was shared a couple of weeks ago when the National Retail Federation, which is the world's largest trade association, held its annual conference with more than 40,000 attendees. This was the most attendees in the organization's history. Uh, that doesn't sound like failing industry to me. And according to their statistics, it's not. NRF boasts on its website, retail sales have grown 4% annually since 2010. Online sales make up 10% of total retail sales. I, I found that statistic so interesting because there's this perception that online sales is retail, right? And so like, hmm, fascinating. We're going to come back to that statistic in a minute as well. And then NRF mentions nine of the 10 top retailers in the U.S. also operate bricks and mortar stores. Again, this sort of competes with that idea that bricks and mortar are failing. Those top 10 retailers include Amazon, Apple, Best Buy, Costco, eBay, Home Depot, Macy's, Curate, Walmart, and Wayfair. Well, it seems like there's some good news for retailers, 
But the headlines continue to tell us retail is basically sucking wind, right? USA Today ran an article three days ago that read, Store closings pile up. 1,200 store closures already announced. Retailers face another grim year. As consumers, this is the information that we're taking in. But you've got to remember what I said a few, few minutes ago. Each of the groups running the numbers show a perspective. They're looking at a snapshot that helps them tell their story. And here's the crazy part. In this case, both are true. Retail sales have grown. Meanwhile, bricks and mortar stores are closing. So how do you put those together? And, and, and what power does that have to create reality? Well, if the first question that I wanted to ask tonight is what is the current state of retail and we get two different stories, the second question I'm going to ask is if 90% of sales happen offline, right? Only 10% of sales are, retail sales are online. Who decided the future of retail is online and what is the cost of an entire industry buying into that story so strongly? It's become their identity and what consumers believe to be the truth. Some of the retail statistics, including the National Retail Federation's eye-opening statistic, that 90% of retail sales happen offline. If that's true, then my second question that I mentioned also before the break is, who decided the future of retail is online? And what is the cost of an entire industry buying into that story so, so strongly? It's become their identity and what we believe as customers. You know, I was talking with the awesome host of the show before me and... We were talking about retail and, you know, uh, one of the gentlemen who participates in that show said, well, what is the truth behind retail? Because I've heard that Amazon is killing everything. Oh, that's fascinating. We're going to talk about that. Um, but you consumers are believing the story that's put out there. So let's talk about some of the, more of the information and, and get into really what happens when you believe a story so strongly it becomes your identity and remembering that we're talking about retail but this applies to any business it applies to any industry it even applies to us as individuals according to big commerce 51 percent of americans prefer to shop online well, I found this statistic particularly interesting because there was no context behind the preference. As a consumer, it's easy to take it at face value. But I will share a different perspective from my personal experience. This year, for the first time in my life, I did all of my holiday shopping online. If I were to take a survey, I would indicate I preferred to shop online. Not because I really enjoy shopping online. I actually don't enjoy it at all. But because the annoyances of shopping in stores made shopping in person so painful, it was actually easier and more efficient for me to shop online. That's a really important distinction to make. And as I'm talking to other people, I'm finding that I'm not alone. So here are my top four annoyances and some questions to get you thinking about how these apply to life outside retail. All right, number one annoyance going into retail stores is inventory. When I went to various stores, they didn't have what I was looking for and said so they'd have to order it online anyway. Well, so that's really interesting because if your goal is to sell online, well then push me to online. If the goal is to get me into the store, then it's important to understand what the customer wants. So 
How well do you know your ideal customer and what he or she wants? How clearly have you defined that? So number one is that idea of inventory and how well you know your ideal customer. Number two is customer service. Customer service in the majority of retail stores, in my experience, is horrifying. I mean, it's just so lacking. And the interesting thing is that loyalty comes from interaction and curated, consistent interaction comes from training. So if what you want is to get people in the stores, what are you doing to create the customer interaction that that establishes loyalty with your brand? So the question for us to be asking ourselves is how are you or your staff trained to interact and deal with your ideal client, right? How are you interacting with the people in your world? So number two is customer service. Number three, the stores are a mess, especially in the larger retailers. I went to the Facebook page of a large retailer and I kind of wanted to get an idea on social media what percentage of the um, remarks were positive and negative. And what was fascinating is the retailer itself had posted uh, marketing for a new perfume. As you went through the ads, um, 41% of the comments were negative and had nothing to do with perfume. They were complaints that people were looking for a place to complain. And the retailer's response was always the same. Could you direct message me more information on that complaint? I'm not sure that's going to get you the, 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 the customer interaction that you want. And back to this idea of stores being a mess... I would say five of those comments had photographs of stores and they were a total mess. And, and the response was still, could you direct message me the details of the mess? Well, there were photographs and location. I'm not quite sure what more information you want. But it was put back onto the client to provide more information about a situation that clearly didn't serve the retailer well. So... Number three is stores are a mess, especially in those larger retails, retailers. So what are you doing when we come back to the question, how does your energy of your location or your own energy impact your ability to attract and maintain a loyal client base? Number four, a big issue for me is waiting in line to pay. And I don't mind waiting in line if there's lots of customers and you see there's lots of people at the register. I mean, that's understandable, right? That's volume. But when you're waiting in line because there's only one or two people at a register, while other associates are stocking shelves or walking around the store, you know, when you see that as a customer, it's so frustrating. The question to ask is, where are you sacrificing a relationship for completing a task? That happens a lot in retail and out, outside of retail. So who decided online shopping was the future of retail? I would suggest retail executives did the moment they started blaming Amazon for poor online and offline results. Here's the thing, in doing research, as of 2018, I could not find 2019 um, statistics yet. Although Amazon captured 40% of online sales, their total sales only represents 5% of all retail sales. So if your primary source of retail sales is online, then Amazon is a huge disruptor. 
However, if 70 to 90% of your business comes from your brick and mortar stores, you have other issues you're not owning up to, right? The way I see it is retail, retailers are creating such a powerful story, it's becoming their identity and will ultimately be their downfall. So if you're a regular listener, you know I often say, in any situation, we have three options. You can blame, you can change your perception, or you can change your procedure. Well, while blaming is easier, it prevents you from creating the clear path to the results you really want. For example, um, I'm going to give you some blaming examples. A large, the employee of a large retail chain said, Amazon sweeps our website for prices and then prices 15% below us. Well, I wouldn't know if that statement is accurate or not, but knowing the retail establishment this person comes from, I wonder if he shops in his own store. The particular store where this gentleman works is a large housewares retailer that was overpriced before Amazon even came on the scene. In its early years, it sold high-quality products and was the go-to for these types of housewares. Now, many of their products are overpriced and not the same quality. And so it doesn't make sense for a customer to shop there unless they're having a sale and they're using a coupon. So if you can't blame Amazon, what is your value proposition, right? If you can't blame, you've got to look another way. And so a question becomes, what is the value proposition? What is the solution you provide for your customer? Another example is a small um, upscale clothing retailer I frequent often complains uh, about its ability to compete with cheaper online clothiers. Well, the truth is that retailer has horrible customer service. My last experience in this store, I had eight items of clothing in my hands. The salesperson stopped me to talk about the sale and to talk about a sale and then mentioned that they were giving an extra 10% off. But she mentioned that with the guys that, well, they really wanted me to give that money back because they were doing this um, online. They were doing a charity through their, their register. And then she pointed me to the dressing room while she returned to the front desk to talk to her associates. So if you can't use cheaper online clothiers as an excuse for declining business, what other areas of business could improve immediately? Looking at the customer experience. What are some ways that if you can't use the excuse, if you can't blame, you can actually get to a solution that could create a better outcome for you and your customers? Another concept which I found really interesting among retailers is that they seem to be taking on this bigger is better outlook, right? And they're combining brands under an umbrella company. And unfortunately, it's leading to disastrous results. With no single brand identity, right, companies, so they haven't clearly defined their own brand. They're buying these other brands to add to their portfolio, and all of the brands are suffering. What's interesting to me is I'd read a Harvard Business Review reported 70, 70 to 90% of acquisitions are abysmal failures. So if that's the information that's out there, what causes these retailers to look at bigger and better? What causes you in your own business, in your own world, to think bigger is better? So the question I have is how does more, how does bigger, support the service and quality that you want to provide to your customer? 
This is getting back to the core, getting back to the basics. You know, they're overly simplistic questions, but the idea is to push you away from the blame game, right? And so again, remembering we're using retailers as our example. Often, when you're caught up in the day-to-day challenges of running a business, again, whether it's retail, whether it's um, you're in the service industry, and, and especially given today's technology, right? Technology is transforming the way we do business. It's easy to forget. It's easy to step back and look at the simple stuff, the stuff that involves people. Technology fools us into thinking it's all about the statistics. And listen, don't get me wrong, important information can come from the statistics. But like I said earlier, statistics can be manipulated to create a story. I challenge you, regardless of your industry, to push past the numbers and use the statistics to get insanely curious about your your customers. Whether you're an individual, an organization, or a business, when your excuse becomes your story and you tell your story over and over and over and over, the story becomes your identity and it's what people believe. And the unfortunate truth is we'll sacrifice our values to maintain our identity, even when that identity doesn't serve us for the long run. I think that's really important to repeat. We will sacrifice our values and in this case, what we say we'll provide to the customer to maintain our identity, even when that identity doesn't serve us in the long run. So what story have you been living by that doesn't serve you? How is holding on to that story become part of your identity as a professional or as a parent or even as a spouse or as a community member? I'll, I'll continue to say this, you know, retail is our example, but you can see how it's easy to fall into these ways of thinking And it's not until we start to question ourselves and each other that we can find a different path. After this week's Musical Artist of the Week, we're going to talk about some ways to find a different path. These aren't one-size-fit-all, magic bullet ways of thinking or an answer to the problem because there isn't one. But it is finding options to help you consider a different perspective, to look through a different lens. Okay. On to this week's Musical Artist of the Week. I am excited to bring back another repeat artist to the show. Brian Jarvis is a Connecticut-based singer-songwriter who has toured with Carly Simon, collaborated with Brendan James, and chart-topping artists like Andy Grammer and Rachel Platten. Brian has recently released his EP, Anyone at All. Back in the fall, I I played this song, and it was so powerful, I just, I had to bring it back. So back by popular demand, tonight we're going to take a listen to his title song, Anyone at All. Inside the feelings you can never erase Been thinking about the meaning Just some tired cliche And talk about how you're strong But I can never relate It's not wrong To be so curious Holding on To what makes the most of us It could be
question. So we're, we're looking at, you know, what is the current situation with retail? We talked about some statistics. We talked about um, how can you start to look at things differently? What's the story that we're telling? Well, the next question I'd ask is, if you don't allow yourself to blame and failure is not an option, what would you do now? Right? So again, using retail as our example, but this applies to anyone. Well, so again, for those of you who listen to the show most often, you know in any situation we have three options. We can blame, we can change our perception, or we can change our procedure. So let's take a look at change in perception. How do you change your perception, and in, in especially in this, in this space of retail or in business? Well, you know, it starts with those in leadership's positions. A shift in how you think about business is key. I had recently read a book I highly recommend called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. Um, it's such a great place to explore other ways of thinking about business. In the book, he talks about how most companies play the finite game, right? It's as if there's a winner and a loser. That finite mindset results in a sort of tunnel vision that pushes everyone in the company to a place of excess focus on the urgent at the expense of the important. It also leaves leaders confused about the difference between having a successful product and having a strong company, right? So that's that finite game. On the other side of the coin, Senek describes the infinite game. That game is one where, where being the moment, um, in that moment of time, you stop to think about who wins and who loses. You stop thinking about who wins and who loses, and you start thinking about how to build an organization that is strong and healthy enough to stay in the game for generations to come. It's where consistency becomes more important than intensity. And you think about how we operate, this seems so opposite of the way businesses are operating, the way we're operating as people. Even that last line where consistency becomes more important than intensity. What I love most about Sinek's book is he points out our current way of doing business wasn't always the way. In fact, during the 18th century, Adam Smith, who's a Scottish philosopher and economist, wrote in The Wealth of Nations, um, the sole end and purpose of all production and interest of the producer ought to be attended to only so far as it may be necessary for promoting that of the consumer. Okay, that's old English language. In layman's terms, the company's interest should always be secondary to the interest of the consumer. So in the 50s, what's interesting is the average life of a company was over 60 years. Today, it's less than 20 years. So what changed? 
According to Sonic, one of the key differences was in perspective. In 1970, Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist who is considered one of the greatest theorists of today's form of capitalism, wrote an article stating, In a free enterprise, private property systems, a corporate executive is an employee of the owners of the business. He has direct responsibility to his employers. That responsibility is to conduct the business in accordance with their desires, which generally will be to make as much money as possible while conforming to the basic rules of society, both those embodied in law and those embodied in ethical custom. Can you see that shift in language? And what I find so interesting is that if we break down this this into the simplest of terms, one man seen as an expert at one time created a story that became the identity of how business was to be done. Later, a different man who had a different approach created a different story. And that is the way that was became the identity and the way business is done. So the gift of making it this simple is that if one man can create the story, it only takes one man to change it. So what is the right fit for today? It may not be Smith's idealistic approach to commerce or Friedman's allegiance to capitalism, but either way, it's worthwhile to consider a different perspective. Think about your own business and even your own life. Can you relate to the finite game? How many people in your organization are so busy putting out fires they don't have time to think about or create a future that's sustainable for the long term? How many of you are so busy responding to the demands of an ill-defined customer base you don't have clarity around the products or service you provide? How many of you are basing next year's figures on last year's results without taking into consideration the one big client you had that's now gone or the increased expense in materials and without having a place for increased revenue? How many are using the finite way of thinking in your home, basing your future finances on where you are now, or even putting out so many fires with your family instead of creating the experience that you really want? Maybe you're ahead of the game and you're already looking at the infinite game. Where do you want to be at the end of the year? You know, what's fascinating is when I mentioned that, I thought, oh, that still seems short term. But surprisingly, the, even with a, a year plan, most companies are still focused on the next quarter, cutting costs to show an increase in profits. It's shifting that to this infinite game. What are the guiding principles that you stand by that are non-negotiable, knowing that parts of the industry are inevitably going to change? There's so much to consider when we look at how we are facing our world, facing our businesses, and are we asking ourselves the questions that give us a different perspective? So we've talked about retail statistics and how to move away from the blame game, offered a suggestion for changing perception. Now let's move on to ways of changing procedure. 
So in this discussion, we're looking at, you know, my age-old focus, which is in any situation, you have three options. You can blame, you can change your perception, or you can change your procedures. So we've talked about blaming and how it doesn't work, and we've talked about changing perception and given some hints from Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game, on ways that you could potentially change perception. Now, let's talk about how do you change procedures when things aren't going well? And again, I mentioned that retail is our focus because it's glaring us in the face. The lessons that can be applied to our own business and in your own life are there. And if we're looking for them and we're asking the questions, we can come up with different solutions. When I thought about this concept of changing procedure and how to apply it to the retail debacle, one of my favorite books popped into mind, and I had to do some digging to find it because it's an oldie but goodie, and I pulled out The Discipline of Market Leaders. And I use this book because it talks about how to hone in and focus. It's this idea of discipline. So it states that if a company is going to sustain dominance, it has to stake claim in the marketplace and decide what kind of value it will offer its customers. And in this book, they narrow it down to three options. You can provide operational excellence, product leadership, or customer intimacy. Here's the key. You can't be all three and remain dominant. You can't be everything to anyone because then you're nothing. So when we look at each of these pieces, operational excellence's value proposition is best total costs, right? They focus on the niche with the core belief that variety kills efficiency. The offer to end, they offer to end, um, end-to-end um, productive delivery and a customer service cycle. They process redesign and work toward continuous improvement. And, you know, in looking at the book, some of the examples they gave were slightly outdated. Um, But I, I decided to come up with some of my own. So with this operational excellence, I thought about Home Depot, right? Home Depot is totally niche. It's crystal clear on what it provides its customers. It's that one-stop shop for home needs, whether you're renovating, you're decorating, you're building. It has everything, and they've expanded over the years into services like rug installation and um, draperies. And you look at all of this and at the lowest possible cost, right? So they've created this operational excellence by being focused on their niche. The second piece, product leadership, When you look at product leadership, their value proposition is best product, right? They cannibalize past success with new breakthroughs. They're masters of innovation, commercialization, and market exploitation. The focus is on product technology. Well, of course, in this area, Apple was the first choice. Apple is totally focused on making its own path. They don't worry about the competition. They know who they are and what they provide. They're not afraid to be different with their product or their store design. It's so important to look at your specific area and get really great at that. Apple's done that with technology. And then the third piece, that customer intimacy. This offers the best total solution. You solve the client's broader problem. It looks at client acquisition and development. It provides that solution development. And there's a focus on an expertise in service customiz- customization. 
So I have to be honest, on this one, it was a little harder for me to find um, who fits this, this day and age. And what was interesting is I started to research loyalty among shoppers. And Trader Joe's was the top of the list, according to Forrester's report on U.S. multi-channel retailers' customer experience index. So when you look at Trader Joe's and their ability, their customer service, their ability to know what their customer wants and keep it stocked in the stores, I mean, they're really brilliant at that. And that creates an intimacy and a loyalty with their customers. So when you look at these concepts, this is to, remember, give you options, things to consider, to look at. This isn't an answer for retail's problems. This is a way to look at a different perspective for retail and your own industry. Well, so let's do an, an exercise. What's important about getting focused? What's important about staying disciplined? I hope you still have your piece of paper in front of you from the, the start of the show. Because I want you to draw a big circle on the paper. And then I want you to put dots all over the circle. I'm going to do it here so you can hear me, right? Dots, 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 dots. And when you look at that circle and you cast your net out, it can be really hard to catch a specific type of fish when the net is that wide. You'll catch something, but it's going to be small and you're going to get some other things in there, right? You're going to get some other fish you don't want. You're going to get some trash. But if you look at this circle, your customer base, and you instead draw a triangle like a piece of pie and then color that triangle in, and if you look at slicing off this piece of pie, this becomes your focus and you can be known and recognized. Sticking with the fishing analogy, if you're someone fishing for halibut, you're going to focus your efforts on where the halibut can be found, right? Where it can be found in schools, not just where you see one. When you cast a smaller net, you can catch more of what you're looking for. And so how is it that you plan to do that for your company in your business? You know, when I'm working with businesses and business owners um, that are, are failing, often it comes down to this lack of discipline. And this idea, you know, who is my ideal customer and what specific value do I provide them? You've got to get past the platitudes and look at what makes you uniquely different. Maybe it is operational excellence. Maybe it's product leadership or maybe it's customer intimacy. Maybe your segments are totally different. You know, other organizations, other books describe it as maybe your lowest price, right? You provide the lowest price like Walmart. Or maybe your customer experience and you're looking at providing the best customer experience. Or maybe your luxury. Or maybe it's not even something mentioned here. Remember, the goal of tonight's show is to get you to think about options. There isn't that one-size-fits-all answer. But if you're going to succeed, you have to stop blaming. You have to change your perception or change your procedure. And sometimes it takes both a change in perception and a change in procedure. You know, that other key is when you see the statistics, don't take them at face value. Use them as a place to get insanely curious about your customers. What information can you gather from that? What questions can you ask to get deeper, to engage them in the experience. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's show as much as I have. Um, 
there's so much on this topic, and I am hoping that you can apply some of these lessons learned um, from the retail debacle into your own business and life. As always, I love hearing your thoughts and getting your feedback on the show. So visit Own Your Truth with Laura T. Facebook page and comment, comment, comment. Mm-hmm.